What is the good life? How do we obtain it? How do we sustain it? This is a question which has a variety of answers in our society. What I decided to do, uh, which I thought would be fun, my last class of LACS, possibly my last class ever, I just had on Thursday, um, I asked my students to do one last Bible assignment. And so I wrote on the board, what is the good life to you? And I got a variety of responses. They're all kind of within the same ballpark. I don't know that young people are always aware, or I don't think any of us are really consciously aware of what we think the good life is. We just live for it. That's what we do. We impulsively just seek what we think is good. Um, But here's what they said. If you want to hear, uh, I've got 24 answers, and I'm I'm abbreviating them. Uh, The good life is pain-free, loving, and safe. It's walking in the will of God. It's travel, quiet life in the woods, and freedom to live fully. Upholding goodness and happiness in others. Stress-free, success, affirmation, financial security, happy family. Family, strong church community. Love with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That student deserves a big hug from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you can look back on your actions with nothing but joy, then you have found the good life. No worry for money and having enough to build homes for family members. Oh, no worry for money and having enough to build homes for family members. He comes from a Hispanic background, if that gives you context. Following God and surrounded by people who follow God. Having enough money to support a nice life and bless others. Not needing to work and chilling without stress. <laughs> even even eight-year-olds understand that one. Uh, not needing, oh, I read that one. Accomplishing your goals. Free from temptation. Support family with good-paying job. Family, tradition, land, God, and adventure. Live in beautiful, quiet setting and specific location, which I generalized for your sake. Small business and travel. God, house, family, garden, farm, ranch, food, friends. Free from financial stress. Beautiful home. No allergies. Amen. Uh, Good job and family. Good pay. Cozy apartment. Cat. Personal library and coffee. Living. Sounds like an old soul right there. Uh, Living out dream without worry and dying knowing I did good. Uh, the only person that mentioned uh, focusing on a good death. I thought that was interesting. Uh, good relationship with God. Steady income. Be cool. Free from anxiety and hardship. Job that doesn't consume life. And the last person simply wrote heaven. <laughs> That's the correct answer. <laughs> yes. Um, we're looking for language on what that is. What is the good life? And, and you know, there's a lot of like God heaven, family, but more specifically, like, how do we define these? Because we need specific goals to aim for, or we don't. If we don't have a target, we don't hit the target. If we have a general direction, we can eventually be a few degrees off of what we thought we're aiming for. Um, Jesus gives us specific words. But here's how I summarize what they said. It seemed to me the bulk of the good life to these young people, 
which we had some pretty good values because they, for the most part, have been in a Christian environment. Um, they said, I would say two things they said is a good life. One is to not be bothered. The good life is to just not be bothered, to escape. And so the things that they mentioned were difficult people, pain, stress, and situations. So keep those bothersome ones away from me and I'll have a good life. Uh, the second way to define a good life for them is to live without limitations. The ability to have the house you want, the place you want, the job you want, that, a job that doesn't restrict you, and the ability to travel, not be geographically restricted, financially restricted, and occupationally restricted. So, um, yeah, that was interesting. Those are some of the visions of the good life. Now, outside of a more Christian influence, you have the good life is all kinds of things you see on television. Do you want to know what culture thinks is the good life? Just watch TV. It is always portrayed because filmmakers know that people are not interested in things they don't care about. So your characters pursue certain values that are meant to resonate with us as the good life. I want the character to get that because I see that as desirable. So if you want to study what culture thinks, be attentive when you watch television. Ask yourself, what does this film want me to love? Every film wants your heart. Ask what it wants. That's the good life it's trying to shape in us. We don't always have a good vision of the good life because our desires are weak. C.S. Lewis once described that our desires are not always wrong. They're just weak. When we want a good thing in a weak way, it actually becomes wrong. So we pursue alcohol and food and, and career and sex. Uh, if you don't desire these things for what they're meant to bring us, then that's a weak desire because you're settling for less and then it becomes bent and distorted. Um, we need, in other words, to work out our desires, to strengthen our desires, to yearn for things greater than what the world is feeding us. And so that's what we get when we open Matthew chapter 5 is we open up to what Matthew presents as Jesus's big sermon. And in this sermon, Jesus shows us what he considers, which I therefore say without qualification, is the good life. Mm -hmm. This is what human beings were meant to look like and what they are supposed to strive after. So tonight, before we get into the sermon so little by little, I'm going to give us an overview of the sermon and then focus on the Beatitudes because they are the introduction to the sermon and we will be going one at a time in the upcoming weeks. Okay, so you guys ready? Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. I'm just going to read through the Beatitudes right now. Seeing the crowds... Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, we know at the end of the sermon that there is a crowd. This is not just Jesus and his disciples. This is Jesus on a mountain, his disciples with him, and crowds beneath. So there is a multitude hearing this. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
and then it goes on. Um, this same formula eight times. Blessed are the four, and there's some sort of a result. Okay. In what we're talking about with the good life, um, the Sermon on the Mount is what we call the words that Jesus speaks from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. It is a long sermon. Well, in the Bible, it's long. If you read it out loud, it's shorter than mine. Of course, we have the consolidation of writing down, summating summating what Jesus has said. Um, So chapters 5 to 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And the way we need to see the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm defending this by how it opens up, and we'll get into this, is that the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to Edenic thriving. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to Edenic thriving. Some people have called this human flourishing, another great term. Unfortunately, human flourishing has been co-opted into much more social justice agendas and um, just things that have kind of veered a little bit away from Christ as a center of the gospel. So human flourishing, yeah. But I want to say Edenic thriving because Eden is where we were made. Eden's what we lost. Christ is bringing us back to what he made us to be, and more than. Because did you know that Adam and Eve were not complete? They were perfect, but they had a life, they had forever to grow in their relationship with God. They were not complete because they were not completely growing up into his likeness. They were created in his image and in his likeness so that they could grow into it. But they cut off their growth short by eating from the tree of knowledge. And so Christ has come to restore us to this Edenic beginning. And now in Christ, we get to continue the journey, which Adam and Eve were not able to uh, venture into. We get to press into union with Christ. That's what the New Testament says. That's amazing. So we have this Edenic thriving uh, to, we're invited into. And this comes from acquiring What it's going to say is that um, we enter into Edenic thriving by acquiring the virtues of God's nature. Now, I'm very specific here. The virtues of God's nature. This isn't just whatever virtue you want to have in your life or whatever you call a virtue and whatever you don't. Let my truth be my truth and your truth be your truth. It's so annoyed with these phrases I hear all the time from young people. Um, These are the virtues which are part of God's nature. And so he has given us these, these virtues for us to participate in so that we can participate in his life to the degree that created human beings can. That's what the virtues are for. They're our way of participating with him without being completely obliterated in his uncreated light and glory because we're mere mortals, right? So this is what the virtues are for. And the Sermon on the Mount lays these out for us and says these are important because this is how you thrive like we were meant to thrive at creation. So here's how C.S. Lewis puts this, because you can be hearing what I'm saying right now and thinking, whoa, this sounds like a lot of work. This sounds like I have to do stuff to be saved. This sounds like God is only going to accept certain people who do certain things. I like how he puts this. God became man 
to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. So he's in this sermon, don't hear Jesus saying, you be better. He's saying, you be new. Be a new kind of person. Because when we are united with Christ, you are not who you used to be. So he continues, and now uses an illustration of a horse. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better. Don't you feel like that sometimes? People are like, be better, be better, do better, do more. Trying to train you to get your best self. A lot of self-help like uh, uh, material out there is a lot like that. It's like, you be better, you. But he's saying it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but it's rather like turning a horse into a winged creature. <laughs> of course, once it has uh, into a winged creature, of course, once it has got its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. This is what Christ has come to do. Not say, jump better, but to say, here's some wings. And now you'll go higher than you could have ever trained yourself to go. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is inviting us into. And I want us to keep that perspective. Christ is inviting us into God, not into a better you. Okay. So, if we look at verse 1, it's actually a key opening. It's not just for setting. Seeing the crowds, so remember there's the crowd, and at the end of this sermon, at the end of chapter 7, we know that there were crowds, and they marveled at what he heard, or what they said, what he said, what they heard. So we know they hear him, he sees the crowds, but he goes up on a mountain. Now he's at the Sea of Galilee, and if you go to the Sea of Galilee, there are no mountains, properly speaking, in the Sea of Galilee. There are hills. Technically, this is the Sermon on the Hill. But Matthew is not ignorant when he writes this. He intentionally says that Jesus goes up on a mountain because what he's doing is he's telling us something about the sermon before we even read it. This is not just a sermon on a hill so he could be heard. This is a sermon on a mountain because there's a specific point to be made. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. How many disciples? Well, he had chosen well, there might have been, we, there might have been the plethora here, but we know that he eventually chooses 12 leading disciples. And so here we have Jesus ascending a mountain and he's about to give the word of God to the people below the mountain. And through intermediating between his words and the people are his disciples. The disciples are meant to receive what he teaches, to live it out and to bring it to the crowds. This is one of the images we have here. But more than this is you have Moses ascending the Mount of Sinai, receiving the word of God, giving it to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel bringing it to the nations. Now that didn't work out very well because Israel received the law and broke it over and over and over. Now Christ is bringing a new set of 12 and they will bring it to the nations. And you and I are evidence that this has been working. Um, so we have a new Sinai. This is a new law. This is the new way to live. 
It's not replacing the old law. It's the maturation of the old law. Do you remember on the board last week, I drew the seed and if you weren't here, just listen to what I'm saying. We drew the seed and it, it was, it grew up into a tree, which grew fruit, or I think it was a flower, the, the fruit, the flower is the fruit. The point of the seed is the flower, but there's a lot of growth until you get to its climax. So we have seen the people of God growing, 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 and the, the law was given to them as part of this growth. And now this law has fruition, it's come to its fruition in Christ. And Christ is showing us now a new and higher level of law, a very different sort. The human now has wings and he wants us to soar to these heights. So um, before we uh, get into the Beatitudes and the structure of the sermon, I have one more question to set up. So we've looked at the setting. The setting's very intentional, the mountain. But now we also see, uh, we have to ask the question of who is this sermon for? Because I'll tell you what I was told growing up. Um, my professor uh, told me that this sermon is for Israel and it's not for the Christian. Now that comes from uh, a high, uh, never mind. It, well, yeah, it comes from a very uh, extreme side of a theological spectrum. So usually you don't want to land on extreme side. You want to kind of live in the middle. Um, yeah, it's not just for Israel. They will say, well, the church wasn't born yet. Hmm. Who's Matthew writing for? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if Matthew didn't think this applied to the church, he would have left it out. Matthew is writing, he's very aware. Uh, as we go through Matthew, you'll see he is church conscious and he's training people. In fact, many scholars think that Matthew is a catechistic document. That means it was a document used by church leaders to train new Christians. And you can see when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it reads like that. It's an invitation into how Christ taught us to live. So, you know, it's not, no, it's not just for Israel. Um, some people say that this is for everybody. To a degree, that's correct, but to a degree, it's not. Not everybody can live up to the standards Jesus is saying here. Only those with the Spirit of God have a chance to meet these standards. You, you see what I'm saying? Um, some people say it's for nobody. This was Martin Luther and Calvin. They said this is for nobody. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us how, how, how much sin we have and that we don't have a chance and that we need God in everything. So the whole point of this is just to beat us up. Um, a good idea and a good premise, but I think it, it, it does damage to the sermon a little bit. Um, others say that this is just for the leadership of the church, whether they be pastors or monks or nuns or priests or whatever, like the people that run the people of God, they are required to live this out, but the common people are not. Uh, that was popular in the medieval ages, and I don't think that we need to see degrees of separation between Christians. Like, why is Richard not expected to be poor in spirit, but I am? Am I a super Christian and he's not? That's absurd to me. Uh, so, who is this for? It's for the church. Matthew writes this to instruct the church. And it's inviting us into that Edenic thriving. So this is for you, and for you, and for you, and for me. And it's also for people outside of the church. But we want to bring them into Christ so that they can live this life. Okay. Um, so let's look at the structure of the sermon now that we kind of see what it's for. It's inviting us to Edenic thriving. Um, so I'll just put that up there for you. Invitation 
to Edenic Thriving. You'll notice that the first word of the sermon is what? No, the first word of the sermon. Blessed. Blessed. Um, In Eden, God blessed his creatures. Right? Blessing first appears in the Garden of Eden. Blessing also first appears at the first, uh, in the Psalms, blessing is also the first word of the whole book of Psalms, which by the way, the book of Psalms is the whole Bible consolidated and it opens like Eden with blessing. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of sinners. Uh, Then it also has the Edenic tree of life growing and invites us into what? Edenic thriving. So, um, yeah, so you see a pattern in scripture that blessed is an ideal state. Um, so it's an invitation to Edenic thriving, and here's how it's all going to work along the way. So I'm going to give you guys, because I think to hear the outline of something is one thing, but to see it is a completely other thing. I'm, I'm kind of graphic-oriented when it comes to literature, uh, so here's how I look at it. So... We have a triangle because this sermon, like all good ones, have a starting point, come to a crescendo, and then come down to a closing point. Yeah? yeah. Jesus is a master. <laughs> Who knew? Um, so at the very beginning, we have what's called the prologue. The prologue is the beginning of, typically described as the beginning of a play, but it's the opening. It's the introduction. Uh, the Beatitudes... Verses uh, 1 through, I think, one is like uh, 16. So 5, 1 through 16 is just introduction. So blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. We go through this, and then he closes this in verse 16 with, in the same way, let your light shine before others. So as we begin to acquire the virtues that are displayed here in the so-called Beatitudes, that's what we call, it's a Latin word for blessed, that's why they're called Beatitudes. It's just the, the blesseds is what you say in English. Um, if we are to live these out, then we will shine. Our good works will shine and, and so that people may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So let, this, let these virtues shine and he'll be glorified. That's the opening. Now, there's this question of how. How do I acquire these virtues? These are tall orders as we're going to go through. Some of them are like, I'm not that. Well, this is how we do it. So the, after the um, prologue, uh, the main body of the sermon has three parts, three very simple parts, in which Jesus then talks about part one. He talks about uh, greater... R is going to stand for righteousness, okay? I just don't want to write all those letters. Greater righteousness in the Bible. Now, when I say Bible, they would have had the Hebrew word Torah, the law, the first five books of Moses, the the Jewish law, but that was their Bible. So he's going to show from the law how to have a greater righteousness. Remember what C.S. Lewis in his illustration said, Jesus is not calling people to be better He's trying to make them into new sorts of creatures that can go to places we couldn't before him. Uh, so there's a greater righteousness that's be, that we're being called to. And this is uh, chapter 5, verse 17. And this goes all the way to verse 48. And what he does, so this is basically the rest of chapter 5. 
what he does is he gives us six examples from the law and says, you heard that the law said this and you shall do this, he says. I say to you, do more. <laughs> here's, here's, here's another level of doing or of being, we should say, another level of being. So there's the six examples, but what I want you to see is his introduction to the section and his conclusion to it because that gives you a really good idea of what he's doing. So if you look at verse, what is it, starting verse 17, verse 5 verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Remember, Jesus' words are not replacing the Old Testament. It's bringing it to its maturation. We use the word fulfillment. But sometimes we think fulfillment means you eliminate the old. Fulfillment just means maturation. So it's an outgrowth of the old. So the old still is there, but it's now brought up to its intended purpose. So do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot, just the smallest part of the law, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is why he's calling for a greater righteousness. There was a standard of righteousness. And Jesus is saying, it's time to grow up. I'm here and I can give you the energy to grow up. So he's inviting his people. The church is called to have a higher standard of righteousness. Now he gives us examples and we'll get into that. But basically you can have paint on a wall that can peel off or you can have ink absorbing material, which is in it through and through. Greater righteousness is not just plastering on us a facade of righteousness, It's righteousness entering and soaking in us like ink, like dye on a piece of cloth. It becomes who we are. That's what he's calling us into, greater righteousness. So the examples from the law come, and then he concludes with this. In verse 48, 548, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I've heard a great deal of people skipping over this. Like, he didn't really mean perfect because we can't. I will teach this to you as it says it. But you'll have to wait for that one. Um, Now, just right now, whatever you're thinking the word perfect means, you have to, like, really temper your anticipations because what you think perfect means is not what ancient people thought perfect means. So right now, you can just get out of your mind that Pastor Brandon thinks I can have perfection. Like, not according to your definition, I don't, but according to this. But that's another time. So that's how he ends it. Intriguing, huh? Yeah, you got. You better come back and hear that one. <laughs> um, all right. So that's the first part of the sermon. Now, the second part of the sermon, number two, is, uh, well, I just call it the center. <laughs> um, and that is chapter six. One through, keep this with me. Uh, one through eighteen. So six one through eighteen is the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, um, the center is the most important section. It's the center, and the way that it's structured is so that everything comes to this point. Six one through eighteen. 
And in the center, there are three parts. So there's three subparts to this center. And in it, Jesus gives us a little miniature pyramid. Um, we have giving to the poor. We have prayer. And we have fasting. So this, this pyramid within the pyramid, there's a pyramid at the peak of the pyramid. That's the structure we have in the center of the sermon. And so you will see how beautifully this is architectured by Jesus. That at the very center of all of this is the Lord's Prayer. And at the very center of the Lord's Prayer, so we're talking about the center of the center of the center, mm-hmm. um, you have petitions to God transitioning to petitions for ourselves. So at the very center of the center of the center of the sermon, you have the touching point of divinity and humanity. That's pretty cool. Uh, So coming back again, the Beatitudes, how do we do these? Jesus increases our expectation of what it looks like to live. And we keep asking, how, how? The answer comes in the center. Do these and you will grow. Again, it'll be very fun to get to that portion of the sermon. Um, And then... We come down and um, after we come from the pinnacle, we should anticipate some change as we come down. And so that's what the third part, one, two, and now three, the third part deals with is greater righteousness. So GR for greater righteousness. Greater righteousness, first it was in the Bible, now it's in the world. How does greater... How does greater righteousness work in the world? Okay, so we've grown to this point. Now where do we go with it? What do we do with it? So that's chapter, that's from 619. Uh, that's a 19. To seven, 619 to 712. And there's going to be two parts to that, which... Um, we will, of course, get into, so you don't have to worry about getting all that down. But uh, he's going to talk about uh, wealth and people. So all of this should affect the way we treat stuff in the world, and it should affect the way we treat people in the world. So that's up to chapter 7, verse 12. And it concludes, if you want to see how that works, it concludes with uh, 7, verse 12, if you want to look at that. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And what did he say in 5 verse 17? The law and the prophets will be fulfilled. What is he saying now in 7 verse 12? You do this and you will fulfill the law and the prophets. So see how, how this whole thing is structured and how it's arcing. And then we come to the final part, the epilogue. So you got to have a counterbalance to your prologue. You have a conclusion. The epilogue is the the two ways. He closes with the two ways. You've heard all of this. You've experienced this. Now it's your choice to do it and live, thrive edenically, or to ignore it and come to ruin. You're thinking, if you're probably thinking, the wise man built his house upon the rock, and then the foolish man, and then all the storms and the winds and the rains come in it. And the house on the... Sand went. I guess I don't teach it to kids anymore. 
<laughs> yeah, the house on the sand went splat. There's these two options that are given to us, and there's there's more than just that one. There's multiple calls to following what Jesus has just taught us. So that is the Sermon on the Mount in its structure. What I want to do is finish our time together with touching a little bit on the Beatitudes, because that's what we're getting into next, and we need to understand what these are here. And the, the, the thing is that Jesus begins with the most important words because these structure everything about this. You notice from the Beatitudes on, we ask how, and then he's giving us answers and then it's showing us how it changes things. So the Beatitudes are an important part that we want to start with. So I'm going to write the Greek word for the Beatitudes on the board and it may trigger in your mind one of our friends. Macarius or Macarios. However, you know, people pronounce tomato, tomato. So Macarios is the Greek word for that word you see in your Bible, blessed. Now, the word blessed is notoriously difficult to translate. It's not difficult to translate. What I should say is it's notorious for its plethora of English expressions. There is no single English word which adequately translates the word Macarius. And that, that needs to be noted, okay? So when you look at the Beatitudes, you have to see, when you see that word blessed, makarios, it is inviting you into Edenic thriving, human flourishing. It's a huge word. It is the same word that is in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, and then it goes into the thriving tree. Uh, now, you might be thinking about the Greek and Hebrew. Yeah, when they translated Psalm 1 into Greek, they chose makarios for Psalm 1. Okay, that's important to know. So we're seeing this specific word that's being used. Now, some people, we can confuse the word blessed. The reason blessed for Macarius is challenging is because sometimes what we think when we hear blessing is we think of a gift being given to us. That God bestows something on us or we bestow something to him. We bless him, we give him praise. He blesses us, he gives us grace. Understand? That's not what Macarius means. Macarius is more of an, you have to think imagely. Imagely? <laughs> you have to use images and think imaginatively. Like Psalm 1. Just Psalm 1 as a whole defines Macarius. Um, so this is some of the ways that Macarius is translated. Um, some, from what scholars have proposed, some say it should be translated, good news. Some say it should be translated, Congratulations. Some say it should be translated as happy. Some say it should be translated as thriving. Some say it should be translated as flourishing. Do you get the idea? What you have here is something where you are at the, you are reaching the pinnacles of what God has asked you to be. Now, that's one thing to understand about Macarius is that um, it describes his richness now, what we, also, we also have to do is get out of our minds the other idea of blessed. This is not a verb, okay? You are not given blessings for being poor in spirit, for being meek, for being merciful. That's not what it's saying. And I think the average reader can just come up to the Beatitudes and assume, oh, if I do this and I am blessed or I get this. This is not an exchange. Macarius is not a verb. It's an adjective, Okay, do you know what I mean by this? The difference? Add, what is it? Add, no, AD, AD. Adjective. Um, what this means is that we are not describing 
conditions, I do this and I get this. We're describing an observation. Macarius looks out at the world and says, there is a common denominator among all those who are flourishing. What is the common denominator? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. These are the common denominators of those who are identically thriving. So it's an observation. It's a description. It's telling you what happy, joyful, blessed people who are walking in the Edenic thriving that God has called us to, this is what they look like. So it's not, again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's not, I've become poor in spirit. God will now bless me. No. I have obtained poverty of spirit and in it, I have found the blessed life. So again, the Beatitudes are invitations they're not prescriptions they're not do this and get this they're invitations to the edenic life so what is the good life it is being poor in spirit what is the good life it is mourning uh most of church history said it means mourning your sins and i take that as it is it's mourning your sins what is the good life it is meekness what is the good life it is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What is the good life? It is showing mercy to others. What is the good life? It is cleansing our hearts and having purity. What is the good life? It is making peace, not keeping peace, making peace among fighting factions. What is the good life? It is suffering persecution. Of all the things you can suffer, <laughs> If you are suffering for Christ, you have found the good life. This is radically different than we conceive of the good life, isn't it? Um, I don't blame anybody. But it's a, it's a sad thing to me that when we ask Christians what is a good life, we list the things that I read and not a single beatitude is mentioned. Because Jesus told us the good life. Macarius is the good life. The good life is those who... So brothers and sisters, this is why I want to give a whole message up front, just talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And then we're going to each week go into each one on its own because these are valuable. There's nothing greater that we can seek to obtain than these blesseds. And you could say, well, Christ is greater. Yeah, these are the virtues of Christ. You are pursuing Christ when you pursue these um, are our desires too weak? Well, I can't say confidently that I wake up hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That I am passionate about peacemaking. My desires settle for far less every day. Oh, no one's fighting. Good enough. <laughs> um, we, what the Sermon on the Mount is, is think of it like this. If you have weak desires, you need a workout routine to strengthen those desires. So the Sermon on the Mount is our workout routine. It will show us what to aim for and tell us how to get there. Now, I have used the word we must obtain these virtues. Yeah. One uh, of the things that the Protestant Reformation in teaching us that we receive everything freely by grace one of the things that we didn't do a good job at, at talking out more thoroughly, and the reformers never denied this, it's just that over time we sort of shortened 
the, the salvation message is like, yeah, we receive salvation by grace, a free gift from God, but there's a lot of growth to do and it takes work to grow. I cannot passively sit around and expect to participate in the virtues of Christ. I have to want them and I have to do something to get them. Now, I'm not left to my own to do that. The spirit of God and the grace of God are working in me. And I can, every day, they're work, every moment, they are working in us. And I can choose to just maintain the status quo. At least I'm going to heaven. Or I can cooperate with the spirit and God's grace. And they will empower me. They will grow my wings to reach new levels. So yes, we are saved by grace and we are given that grace so that we can then go work. As Jesus said in 517, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. So the Sermon on the Mount, brothers and sisters, is a workout routine. It's calling us to get going. And so it will challenge us, but don't forget why it's challenging us. Let's desire the kingdom of heaven. Eden and the kingdom of heaven are synonymous. It's all the place and paradise of God. Let's desire more. Let's allow Christ to strengthen our desires. And what we'll find in the end is that the Beatitudes come with blessed. They come with something at the end. You notice that? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The last one is the same. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These aren't rewards. It's not, I did it, I get it. These are results. We walk into Macarius, into the good life. This is what's there. The kingdom of heaven. It is the good life. It is everything we've wanted. I'm going to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think summarizes neatly what Jesus is getting at in this sermon. We might think that God wanted simply obedience to a certain set of rules. You hear this in culture all the time, right? Religion is about obedience to a certain set of rules. Do you think that that's what God wants? We might think that God wanted simply obedience to a certain set of rules. But what he really wants are people of a particular sort, a certain type of person. The point is not that God will refuse you admission to his eternal world if you have not got certain qualities of character. He's not going to refuse you because you don't have the Beatitudes, okay? But the point is that if people have not got at least the beginnings of these qualities inside them, then no possible external conditions could make a heaven for them. Okay, so you can give people perfect paradise, and if there is not an ounce of the virtues Jesus is calling us to in us, we've never entered into Edenic thriving. You cannot make a situation good enough because there's hell inside of you. You have not learned to allow the life of God in us. That's That's what Lewis is saying and why Christ is calling us on this path. It's very important. So um, he then closes, that is, um, no external condition could make them happy with the deep, strong, and unshakable kind of happiness that God intends for us. If you really want the good life, don't wait for external circumstances to get better. Don't think, oh, heaven will heal it all. I mean, it will heal a lot of things. I'm saying your problems right now, Christ is inviting you into Edenic thriving. He's saying, 
I'm offering it to you now. The gateway to living in the foothills of heaven is here. The question is, will you be strong enough to go up the mountain when I come or not? What do you love? You and I are working out our desires to love one of two paths. Jesus is showing us how to love his path. That's what this sermon is. So glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen.